0: Well, brothers and sisters, let us be reminded that all flesh is like grass and all its glory like the flower of the grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. It's always good to be reminded when the world feels especially unstable that God's word will stand and His word is trustworthy, it is stable, and it is a privilege to be able to gather around it this morning. So may God bless our time uh, in His word. We come to a very interesting passage uh, this morning. In fact, probably if you Google uh, something like strangest uh, passages of the Bible or oddest passages, uh, most likely this this passage actually shows up. Uh, As I remember it, I I did a, back in 2004 when I was youth pastoring, I did a series on odd encounters in scripture and uh, I believe I preached on this passage. I think I preached it wrongly, but... So hopefully I can get another swing at it. Hopefully we get one in play here. Um, but, you know, it's a very strange story because the author goes out of his way to give graphic details about what's going on. He he kind of goes in slow motion mode for a while. Uh, but it's a, it's a wonderful passage, especially in, in a moment of history like now where um, we watch as this... This country who had uh, oppressed a nation for 18 years, all in a day, totally overturned. Why? Because God wanted it that way. God overturned it in a second. And that's, uh, that's what uh, evil empires are up against. They think they rule the world, but they don't. God is the one in ultimate control. So it's good for us to be in this passage today. Uh, one of the ways I like to read, uh, especially uh, biblical narrative, is just you, you try to sit... and and try to envision how you would set this up if you were going to make a play out of it or put it on TV, so you, you pay attention to the scenes and how the author shifts through. He's telling a story, and just like as in a play, you're trying to have an effect on the audience. And you're trying to raise questions and tension in the air. And so that's how we'll go through it today, just kind of walk through the scenes. I'll try to name them for us, and uh, we'll work our way through and try to try and understand what the hot spot of the passage is, where, where the author is trying to draw our attention uh, to in this uh, very unique passage. I, I we might not read all of it, but I'll kind of explain what's going on. The first scene I would have from verses 12 to 14, and I call this, I title this one The Problems. We're told right away, uh, again, uh, that the, the people of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord. If you've been with us in the book of Judges, that is our key to a new scene coming on. This is the repeated cycle. The people of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord. Uh, and so God responded. The Lord strengthened Eglon, the king of Moab. And then he tells us a little bit about the, the, what the king did, right? He, he actually uh, had control over Israel. He managed to gather the Ammonites and the Amalekites. Those are also countries surrounding Israel, uh, just like Moab is. And he gathered them and they all went against Israel. In particular, they took over the city of Palms, which is Jericho. So we're, we're introduced to Jericho is now overturned. It's under the authority of the Moabites. And remember, Jericho was the very first city that Joshua and the Israelites took over. So we almost have this undoing of the work. The people were supposed to be in control of the land, and now they're enslaved. We're told that they were serving Eglon for 18 years. Now, Eglon means little calf, a little plump calf, which... We'll see later, Uh, but it's it's actually sort of a play. The, the, The story gets comical, and he's really making, he's going to make a mockery of Eglon and the Moabites. So if I were to put this on in a play, I'd probably start off with a man out in the field, and he's harvesting the grain, and he's got his young boys with them, and They're working hard, they're sweating, they're gathering up the grain. And then one of the boys turns to the dad and says, dad, why do we do all this work? Why do we have all this grain, and yet we don't get to eat it? Why are we hungry? Where does all this grain go? And the dad sadly has to tell his son, well, son, because we're under the authority of an evil empire. We don't have choices. Our military is weak. Our weapons are scarce. We don't have much hope for us. Hopefully the land will be yours one day if they allow us to keep it. And so we're introduced to a major problem in the text. 18 years that are under this king where they're oppressed. And later we'll see that they're taking their food. 18 years. What were you doing 18 years ago? That's a long time to be under an evil umpire. And the major question that gets raised is how in the world is Israel going to be delivered from her enemies? How is she going to be delivered from her enemies? Well, and we move into the next scene and we see a spark of hope or a ray of hope. That's what I would call this next scene from verses 15 to 16. I I'd probably have uh, some people finally starting to gather out in the marketplace and, and they've, they've been trying everything. They've been going to the, the, the Baal temples. They've been worshiping the Ashtaroth, or they're getting involved in any, any, any God out there that, that can maybe do something. And finally, they they start to cry out to Yahweh. Now, again, not like our last passage, not in repentance, but just simply in pain. If anybody is out there, Yahweh, if you can do anything, rescue us. And so they're out in the marketplace or wherever, and they're gathered and they're crying out. Who will rescue us? How will we be delivered? And then I'd have a a man enter onto the, the stage And maybe a little light on him that demonstrates to the audience, here he is. It's Ehud. Right, that's Rocky, right? It would be some sort of a theme that would that would capture the idea. Here, here is the the deliverer that the Lord, the text tells us, the Lord is raising him up. And he is going to be the one that is going to save Israel. Now, we're told some very key things about this man. He's from Benjamin, which throughout the book, Benjamin actually does not get a good rap. Uh, We see them at the end of the book. And he's left-handed. Now, that's going to be very important later because most likely it's him being left-handed that he can actually smuggle in a weapon into the palace in order to kill Eglon. Because soldiers most likely were right-handed, and if they were going to hide a weapon, they'd hide it on their, right, or on their left thigh so they could quickly grab it. But Ehud, being left-handed, can have his weapon. Text tells us that he puts it on his right thigh, and most likely the security is not going to check his right leg because soldiers aren't left-handed. I mean, you can even think about some of your grandparents probably uh, living in our culture. Uh, when, you were raised, when you were born left-handed, a lot of, a lot of times they, the culture tries to make you right-handed. Because left-handed is, is different, it's strange, it's weird, right? And so being left-handed can actually um, like be squelched in a community, but it can also be uh, very helpful. And in, in fact, we're told later in the story, that uh, in, in chapter 20, that the Benjamites had 700 Benjamites who were all left-handed. Now, that could have been because they were trained that way. It could have been because they're biological. They just are, you know, there's some sort of a gene. Uh, But we're told particularly in that story that they, these left-handed, 700 left-handed Benjamites could use a sling and hit a piece of hair without missing. They were very skilled warriors. So it seems that they were probably trained this way to to actually confuse the enemy. You know, if you think of, like, baseball, left-hander, if you're a left-handed hitter, like you're just not used to that, or a southpaw in uh, boxing, it just throws the, other, it throws the opponent off. And so here, when we're introduced to this left-handed man, it's actually a very key, uh, key piece of uh, evidence here, or, or helpful, that's going to be helpful in the story. Uh, we're also told that he is uh, what we might call a tributeeer. Don't worry, I don't actually have a larger dictionary than you. I just made up that word. He's a tributaire. He, he carries tribute from Israel to Eglon. And he, he gathers up other people, and they take all the grain, maybe some animals, and they go pay off Eglon in order to keep him satisfied, pacified. So we're told he was a tributeer. And then in verse 16, we actually then I would take the scene back to his shed. And uh, possibly what's going on is by the time you get the first Samuel and Saul is king, there's this scene when only, uh, only Saul and Jonathan, his son, they go out to war. Only those two have weapons. Why? Because the Philistines have destroyed all blacksmiths. No blacksmiths are allowed in the land because the blacksmiths make the weapons. And so it's possible that Ehud here is actually in his shed making his own sword because that's the only way you can find one you have to make your own and i've never done that but it's not an easy process you got to heat that metal up you got to bang it you got to heat it back up you got to bang it and here he's making a particular sword one that's about a cubit in length or maybe a little bit shorter uh, which is a little bit bigger than a dagger but you know he's sizing it up so that it can go on his thigh and so that he can walk but also not be detected and it's sharp on both sides so that it's going to go into a belly real nice. So here we're just we're introduced. Here's this man walking into the marketplace. God is raising up a deliverer. But really? Like this left-handed guy? Is he really going to be able to rescue Israel from Eglon, the Moabite? Well, then we move on to our next scene. And I call, this is from chapter, uh, verse 17 to the beginning of 19, I call this one, Operation Deliverance Tribute is developed. The operation called Deliverance Tribute, it would start out in the morning and the people have gathered, families are coming, they're, they're bringing satchels of grain that they have harvested that they would love to eat but they can't and they're, they're making piles of it so Ehud can take it to the king. Possibly they're in Jericho or possibly they're back in Moab. But whatever it is, Ehud's there. He's got his crew and all the people have gathered and they've, they've got this big pile of grain to now go pay off Eglon. And they start on their trek to go see Eglon. Eventually they show up uh, at the palace and there Ehud stands before security. Ehud of course, gets through security because his sword, if he has a sword on him, maybe he stashed it on the way for the moment. But he gets through security, and his brain starts ticking because he's actually on uh, spy mode. Where are the exits at this palace? What hallways lead to what? Where are the security guards? Where is everybody placed? And where is the king? Because Ehud, you know, he's planning for how he's going to now deliver Israel. So he's here on a tribute, yes, but he's on a mission. He's on a mission to bring deliverance to Israel, and so he's on a spying mission as he brings tribute to the king. And in verse 17, then we're uh, introduced to Eglon, a very fat man. Now, that's actually meant to, uh, what would you say, sort of, It paints him as this picture is Eglon is fat and Israel is skinny. They're scrawny. They don't get their food. Why is Eglon fat? Because he's eating all their food. And so even as you read it, you're like, oh, I don't like this guy. He's taking all the food of Israel. And uh, later we're actually told that the soldiers also were fat or robust. And so you walk in, and uh, all all the men are fat from eating all of Israel's food, and you get this distaste in your mouth for these people who are oppressing Israel. But lo and behold, they make it through, and finally they go down the the hallways, and there he is, Eglon. Eglon waddles out of his seat, (laughs) comes down to look at the grain, smells it. Maybe he tastes a little. He says, what's this leaf doing in here? Next time you will bring double to pay for that. These weights are off. But it looks good. Get out of here. Or whatever it is. This is not an nice man. He takes the food from Israel. And it looks like they've pacified him for yet another time. So Iha then leaves. He is on his way back. And we're told in the text, particularly, that he is now sending away the people who are with him. And at the idols near Gilgal, one of the cities uh, near Jericho, uh, he tells everybody, okay, the mission's done, you guys go home. And Eglon, or I'm sorry, Ehud, at that moment, there's a twinkle in his eye and you, you think, I think he's going to do it. I think, he's, I think he's going to go back. And something, I don't know why, exactly why the author tells us it's at the idols of Gilgal, or near Gilgal. Uh, there's a couple options here. It could be that the idols represented just how far uh, Eglon had control, and that stirred up Ehud in that moment, is that this land it just represents what we should have it, and we don't. Or it could be, that those idols have such influenced Israel that maybe he saw someone, a fellow Israelite, worshiping at the idols, worshiping at the temple. And that stirs him up. I tell you what, one time I went to, I had to do a project and we had to go visit like different temples, like a Buddhist temple, Hindu temple, a mosque and such. And I remember being at this Hindu temple and it was this mom and her, maybe a five-year-old, six-year-old, And there's the six-year-old bowing down to the statue. And something inside of me just was frustrated. Like, what? Like, this is not right. Now, that's what I think probably is going on, but I I don't know. know, I'm just trying to figure out why does the author tell us it is right there at the idols. Ehud, he couldn't take it anymore. And he turns around, sends everybody home, and now he's going to go on the mission. But of course, can one man defeat Eglon? Does he really have a plan or is he just marching to his death here? I mean, what what is he going to do? But he takes off. And next we come to the longest portion of the passage, 19b through 26. And here we see the operation, deliverance, tribute enacted. So Eglon makes his way back. He gets through security once again, and he tells them at security, hey, I I have a message for the king. I was just here. I need to tell him something. And so they lead him back. Eglon's there. What do you want? I have a secret message for you, old king. Now, maybe he even said, I was by the idols near Gilgal, and I have a message for you. And the king says, Silence! Which was a cue to all of the servants to exit the room. Now this is perfect. Because now Eglon has a private encounter. Because The servants are gone. It's just him and Eglon in the cool roof chamber. And he says it again. O king. I have a message from God for you, and now the 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 author really slows down the pace, and we're just we'll just let the author tell it as Eglon waddles off his seat beginning in verse twenty, and he arose from his seat, and Ehud reached with his left hand, he took the sword from his right thigh, and he thrust it into his belly. The hilt, which would be the handle, it also went in after the blade. Eglon's fat closed over the blade, for he did not pull the sword out of his belly. So now Eglon's hand is stuck in his belly, and the dung comes out. That's number two. Then Ehud went out into the porch, he's making his escape, he closes the door, he locks the door, and he starts to take off. Okay, so it is meant to be comical. Here's this fat man who's been ransacking Israel, now smelling like number two laying on the floor. Now, how Ehud exactly escaped, you know, got the blood off his hand, we don't know, maybe he wiped it all all over Eglon, we don't know, but he, he was able to escape and get out of the room. And eventually, as time goes by, maybe Ehud went past the guards, and they thought, oh, they're done. Or maybe Ehud went a different direction, and it, the time's gone, enough, enough time's gone by. But whatever it is, the servants say, hey, let's go, check on, let's go check on the king. And so they go over, and they notice, oh, the doors are locked. <laughs> Ooh. Dude, that is a bad one. What did we? What did we feed the king for lunch? Man, that's—they're—they're they're smelling number two, and they—they—they're having this conversation. He's—he's he's probably going to the bathroom. He's relieving himself, dude. That is so bad. And they're kind of joking around. It's so bad, until the text says they do this until they're embarrassed, because it's been so long. Like, what in the world is he doing in there? Again, it's meant to be comical. The author is intentionally smearing this, this uh, group that has so oppressed Israel. Like, look at what God will do to his en- the enemies of God's people. Look at this. And they're embarrassed. So they finally, somebody runs and gets the key and they open it up. And there lies their Lord dead on the floor in his own dung. Then we're told Ehud escaped while they delayed and he passed, here it is again, beyond the idols, and he escapes to Sirah. Now, a major question is in the air right now. The major question is, how, how is everybody going to respond? Now, Moab, is, is Moab going to retaliate? Are they going to come after Ehud? Are they going to come after Israel? What are they going to do? Are they going to bring more punishment on Israel, just like uh, Egypt did to uh, Israel? right? When Moses came, but what is Moab going to do? But also, what is Israel going to do? When they find out what Ehud does, what are they going to do? Because, you know, later in the, uh, in the book, when Samson actually defeats, defeats some of the Philistines, he comes, uh, comes back into the land. You know what they want to do? They hand him over to the Philistines. In fact, first, they were just going to uh, kill him them themselves. And they say to Samson, what are you doing? Don't you know that they rule over us? What are you doing? You're going to get us all killed. So what is Israel going to do here when they find out what Ehud has done to Eglon? Well, the author tells us, verse 27, Ehud goes up onto the hill, the hill country of Ephraim. He blows the trumpet. The trumpet would be like the the rally cry for the military, come. Come and the people actually respond. They go down with him from the hill country, and now Ehud is their leader. But here's the moment of decision, because then Ehud, having all the crowd, all the people with him, he says, now, follow after me, because Yahweh has given your enemies, the Moabites, into your hand. This here is the moment of decision, and you, you could pause and try to look at their faces. Will Israel risk everything for the sake of the kingdom? I mean, what's going to happen? They're not a strong army. Eglon's the powerful one. The Moabites are the powerful ones. What are they going to do? What, what's going to happen if they lose? What will happen to their kids? What will happen to their grandkids? What will happen to their land? All these questions would be going on in your mind. And I could imagine if we had a time machine and we could zap ourselves back there, we'd probably want to try to encourage them to follow. No, we couldn't promise them safety. We might tell them, look, I I don't know how the battle's going to go. Some of you might die. Some of you probably will die. It's going to be difficult. But it's worth it. Because following Yahweh into the battle is always better. It's always better to follow God than pursue your own safety. It is always right to do what God calls you to do rather than do what you want to do. It is always right. So go into the battle. Follow God's deliverer that he has raised up for you and let God do what seems best to him. Well, thankfully, that's what they do. They follow, they go after him, and the story then calms down. They seized the fords. The fords would be uh, like in the Jordan River, uh, a a place where the river's low and you can cross over it. And they they block it off. Most likely that means that the Moabites in Eglon were in the land. They're probably in the city of Jericho and they want to now escape because Israel is rallying up against them. They're revolting against them. They want to escape back over the Jordan, get back to Moab, but they block it off and we're told they killed 10,000 of them. And not a single man escaped. Whereas Ehud... Escaped by the hand of the Lord, not a single man of all ten thousand of the Moabites escaped. All strong men, able-bodied men, and Israel is sub- was or Moab was subdued that day under the hand of Israel, and the land had rest for eighty years. And then Shamgar comes along. He killed six hundred Philistines with an ox goad, and he also saved Israel. The moral moral of the story seems to be that Israel was delivered from her enemies by following God's chosen deliverer into God's victorious battle. Or you might say that a little bit more broadly to all the audience reading the book that deliverance from our enemies is found by following God's deliverer into God's victorious battle. Deliverance from our enemies is found by following God's deliver into God's victory. Because the big question I think the author wants to raise then is, are we willing to follow God's deliver into the battle? I want to just pause here and just talk quickly about uh, some ways that we can misread a passage like this, because we're going to be in Judges for a while, and you read biblical narrative, I trust, at home or to your kids. There's ways to misread these stories, that I think take us in a different direction than the author, I think, would have us go. And hopefully then that will pinpoint where, how we should read the story. I think a major way that people will misread a story like this is to hear it as a promise, uh, a promise that we will be delivered from earthly hardship. I mean, here you have it. He had trusted in God, and he went against the enemy, and God rescued him from the earthly hardship. And so we take it as some promise that God's going to protect us from all evil or all hardship and it simply just does not line up with the rest of scripture right so we know that can't be accurate i mean many of the prophets who stood for uh the truth of what god said they were killed they weren't rescued from their enemy god let jeremiah be tossed into a cistern you have others that were torn limb from limb so it definitely is not a promise. You have the apostles in the New Testament to undergo great persecution. Some are killed, some are starved. They go sleepless nights, left out to dead. And of course, our Lord himself was not spared from evil. Right. So we definitely know that the message of the story is not a promise that will be delivered from hardship. In fact, I love the way Paul Tripp talks about this idea. He says, look... God is more concerned about your eternal joy than your temporal happiness. God's not going to rescue you from all hardship on earth. In fact, God might actually be calling you into the hardship to set you free from yourself, to, to, to set you free from your love, from comfort and safety and having the world set up the way you want it. And actually, God might perfectly ordain the hardship that you experience to set you free so rather than being delivered out of the, the hardship, sometimes it's God delivering us from ourselves through the hardship. And so we don't want to read the story that way. Nonetheless, we trust that God does deliver us from hardship sometimes, right? So that's great. I mean, we should we should ask God for that, uh, but we shouldn't expect that this is some sort of promise. Uh, secondly, uh, that is a word, right? Secondly? No? Is it? Okay. Uh, <laughs> it is now. Um, so a second way we can uh, be tempted is to simply identify with Ehud. This is a very common way, mis- way that we misread uh, Old Testament narrative. Uh, we love to be the hero in the story. right? We, we are the ones who should have the great faith, and that's how we read the story. Have great faith. In fact, if, if I'm pretty sure I did preach this passage in the youth group, and that's exactly how I would have preached it. That was how I was trained to read the Bible back then. Uh, You be like Yehud. Come on, let's go. Let's be people of great faith and accomplish great things for God. I mean, it sounds great because we want to be like Yehud. That's true. The problem is you're not like Yehud. You're way more like Israel and so am I. We're stubborn. We're like foolish sheep and we're always getting in trouble. And we need someone like Yehud to actually get us out of trouble. Right? And so we need to follow that one. It's not about us being like Ehud. It's about us needing someone like Ehud who can come and actually rescue us from the trouble that we find ourselves in. So third, uh, you, can, you can go on the other side of the ditch with this. Uh, once you kind of realize that, th- that that's not how we should read the Old Testament narrative, you can go on the other side and not actually be challenged by Ehud. Right, we actually are supposed to be challenged by Ehud's faith here. It is it is incredibly courageous. The man went all by himself on this mission when all Israel was unwilling to do anything. And yet here's a man uh, who trusts in Yahweh to give over uh, the enemies of God's people into his hand. I mean, that's incredible. We love the underdog story, do we not? I mean, how many movies have you watched on the underdog and you get up and you're ready to like go Climb a mountain or go work out or go do something because you're, you're stirred up. You're, yes, I want to be courageous like that. And we should read a story, a story like this. And there should be something in us that says, yes, I, I do want to have the faith like Ehud. I don't. I need someone like Ehud to come. But I want to be stirred up like that, be willing to risk my life. I'm guessing if you walk with Christ, you want to be more risk-taking for the sake of the kingdom, Yeah. A story like this is actually meant to do that in us, make us more willing to do that. Uh, One final way to misread this passage is to focus more on the physical rescue than the greater rescue that Israel actually needed. They indeed were rescued in an incredible way from Eglon and from the Moabites, but that's not the rescue of the passage that they're desperate for. Now, remember, in the, in the very opening of the story, we're actually introduced to two problems. Israel, again, did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. That's problem number one. Problem number two only arises because of number one. Problem number two is, therefore, God gave Eglon strength to oppress Israel. The, the real problem is not Eglon. The real problem is not Moab, Mo, uh, Moabites. The real problem is Israel right? What's going on inside of her? Because Shamgar and Ehud will judge Israel for 80 good years. They were were good, strong military men. They could could lead an army. They could even perhaps point people to follow the Lord. But there's one key thing they could not do. They could not actually change Israel inside. I mean, you read chapter 4, verse 1, and we're right back at the beginning. And the people of Israel, again, did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. I I can assure you, the first audience was not reading the story and just only paying attention to the physical rescue, because that's not what Israel needed. The Old Testament, as we read it, we're supposed to have a longing for a deeper work, not to simply just be set free from hardship on earth, but to actually be set free from our own selves. That's why the new covenant is so significant. When God says, I will come, I will take out your heart of stone. And I'll put in the heart of flesh that causes you to follow in my statutes. I'll give you the Holy Spirit to empower you to to walk in the ways of God. So the story is actually meant to stir up this longing for someone greater than Ehud. Someone that, that actually takes care of the deeper problem. Not the Moabites, but actually the sin problem that we have, that Israel faces. The greatest problem we face today is not anything that the world does to us. The greatest problem we face is our, the sin and death. Right? It's this, this war within us. And that's where the scriptures constantly drive us to from the Old Testament. We need that deliverer to come. We need the deliverer like he but better. The one who could solve the biggest problem. The problem of sin and death. The one who could deliver us from the, the demand of darkness and transfer us into the kingdom of the beloved son. The one who, who could break the, the penalty of sin, solve the The penalty of sin and break the power of sin that's the deliverer we need the one who could come and set us free and brothers and sisters that's what Christ has done for us look we have a moment of decision as well every week every day right we have enemies but it's not just physical enemies it's not just physical hardship it's what's going on in our own heart Look, you're going to face a battle this week of your own sin. And, you know, that can range from all sorts of things. Bitterness in the heart. Living for reputation. Willing to, to throw other people in the bus just so that you're accepted in a group. Living under the fear of man. Being sharp with other people. Running to all sorts of comforts to try to to satisfy yourself. Now, when I, you know, probably if you would ask me a decade ago, like, how do you overcome those things? I, I probably could have sat down and given you a nice five-step program for each of those. But good night, I feel like the older I get, the less answers I have. I don't, I don't know. I don't have like a five-step program. It's quite simple in some sense. It's follow the one who can deliver us. Lay down before him cry out to him. He's the one that has the power. I don't have the power. There's nobody here who has some scheme that can fix us, but Christ does. He's the one we go to. He's the one we wait on. And the hard part about it, it's this constant plodding forward, one step in front of the other. It's being like the Israelites right there in the moment where Ehud says, follow me. Come on, I don't know how it's going to go today. And Jesus says, come, follow me, lay down your life. Lay down your need to, to look important for other, in front of other people. Lay down your need for your reputation. Lay down your need for your world to go on as you think it needs to. And sacrifice and serve and lay your life down for the sake of the kingdom. I mean, that's a, that's a hard, hard battle. So that's, that's the way I would understand this passage. Uh, and where I would walk away from, and as I've thought about it, is, one, do I know what my greatest enemies are? Can I name them? For me, I, I, I love to live for my reputation. I, I want people to think well of me. I'm quick to defend myself. I don't like to be shown that I'm wrong. And so I really, I really want to make myself look great. And that's going to come at a cost, to follow Christ into the battle. And oftentimes we feel like Paul, Romans 7. What I want to do, I don't do. What I don't want to do, I do. Wretched man that I am, who will rescue me from the body of this death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Brothers and sisters, let us be people this week who follow our deliver into the battle, the greatest battle, to fight against our own sin in our heart. Let us pray. God, we need your grace. We need Christ. We need one greater than Ehud. We need one greater than ourselves. We are, we are totally incapable of fixing ourselves. We are out of resources. God, would you so stir in us to fight against our sin, and to fight for righteousness, stand for truth, regardless of the cost, looking to our deliverer to lead us into your victorious battle. In Christ we pray, amen. We're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper this morning. If you're a follower of Christ, we invite you to come, and we'll pay particular attention to the fact that uh, in Christ's death and resurrection, he both solved the penalty of our sin and broke the power of our sin. So if you're walking with Christ, stumbling though we be, we invite you to come and uh, grab the elements and return to your seat. Brothers and sisters, let us be reminded this morning that because of the broken body of Christ, the penalty of our sin has been fully paid. There's not an ounce of judgment left for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, he took bread, and after giving thanks, he broke it and said this is my body, which is broken for you, Christian. You know, sin is very deceitful. It tells us that it's our friend, only wants to help us. And when we resist it, sin tells us we don't have the power. We don't have the strength. You must succumb to it once again. Let us be reminded that the new covenant gives us a different promise. Let the the cup speak to us today. Reminding us that the new covenant has come, and the, inaugur- the, the, the blood of Christ has inaugurated it, giving us new hearts and the Holy Spirit to fight against the, in that in that in, internal battle against sin. Christian, in the same way, the, cup, the, the Lord Jesus took the cup after supper, saying, "This cup—it is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you rem- uh, do this as often as you drink of it in remembrance of me."